Good morning. We are in the second chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, a church that he loves. He has spent 18 months there teaching, discipling, grinding through the doctrine with them, speaking to them about things, and yet this church that has a number of different problems, but the main one, they think Paul, after all he's done for them, is against them. And in chapter 5, he had wrote to them earlier, an earlier epistle addressing a number of problems that was at Corinth. So really, 2 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is also 3 Corinthians, but he's what he's speaking of, what I really want us, want us to address, and Paul is telling the church of Corinth, is the power of the cross. We have to understand the culture that the Corinthians lived in. They place a lot of esteem on philosophy and so forth. And if you think about it, it's not so different than our culture. I've been on several mission trips, and I remember the trip we took to Ecuador, and we went to Cali, Colombia. And the thing is, when you get to those third world countries, they don't have the same issues that we have here. And Paul, as he's speaking to the church of Corinthians, I think of Atlanta, I think of LA, I think of those large cities, Chicago. And it's not so much in a third world country where they really have to understand, they really have to put in their minds, their hearts, that Jesus loves them as poor as those countries can be. It contradicts everything that the Bible is telling them about the love of God. And yet, when I was in El, El Salvador, when I was in uh, Cali, Colombia, I have never experienced so much joy of the little that they had. The church was growing, it was blossoming, and it was all because they loved the Lord and they put all their trust and their hope in the Lord. But in America, we don't struggle with those problems so much. Our warfare is one of devotion. There are so many things that pulls at us and tries to get our attention from pornography, from drugs, to pleasure, to gambling, to alcohol, to entertainment. And we're just glutted with so many things. And we are a sensory world, and we're bombarded continually telling us the media and everything, what we need. And so we have a battle with devotion, to take devotion of our hearts. But it's, it's a warfare. It's a continual warfare. And Paul understood what the Corinthians were going through, what they were facing, and he challenges them here about the power of the cross and the message of the cross. And he says, look, just like we can bicker about politics and social issues today, and we need to say it's all about the cross of Jesus Christ. What happened 2,000 years ago, 
There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. He's risen. He's returning for those that's looking for him. And it may sound foolishness to the culture we're living in, but when the word of God comes to someone with a broken heart, to someone that is asking for God to come into their life, it is the power of God unto salvation, and it will transform that believer's life. By the time Paul reaches Corinth at this time, he says, I'm just going to tell them about the testimony of God. I told you before when he went to Athens, a lot of people said he, he put the testimony of God aside, and I don't see it like that. He still spoke the testimony of God. He just nailed it out when he got to Corinth. I'm going to sink or I'm going to swim with the testimony of God because that's the power of his word. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to make it slick or savvy. You don't have to be a great orator or a philosopher. That's, that's used to what they were used to. Paul says, I'm going to tell them exactly what the Bible says, and I will let God add his power to it. He's big enough to do that. So as he comes to Corinth in the second chapter, he says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. We know he's speaking of Sophia. They boasted in their learning. They boasted on how they could pronounce words and say words but what they were speaking of was cotton candy. It, 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 it didn't help them spiritually. And so Paul says, I didn't come with you with speech of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. And the scripture is God's testimony. If anybody wants to know God, if anybody wants to know Jesus Christ, he's in the Bible. It tells of how much he loves us, loves this world, he shows it by giving his son. He says in verse 2, for I determine. Now he begins to tell about the testimony of God. Not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the crucified one. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, and that's physical weakness, in fear and in much trembling. Acts 18 tells us about Paul's journey there. Acts 18, verse 9, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. I think Paul was getting ready to run, getting ready to leave where he was at. And, and the Lord says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Verse 4 tells us, and Paul says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and a power. And he doesn't mean he was doing all these kind of miracles of God. The power were in the changed lives of the Corinthians church. And he's boasting about that power. So he says, not, not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul understood what security there is in the word, where they were assailed by a thousand different idols at Corinth. You know, people can talk a lot about 
the gospel. They can, you can either coerce people into the gospel. You have gyms in the churches now. You have coffee houses. Nothing wrong with coffee. But if, you be, if you're a slick, they think, if you are slick in believing the gospel, you can be slicked out of not believing it. Some college professor is waiting right now for a child who is being groomed in the word. They can't wait till they hit their campuses and try to make their faith melt like wax. And that's what Paul is so determined not to let these Corinthians do. But I want your faith, he says, to be established. That word established means semen it. Once you have it, semen it down. Verse 4, he says, demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul trusted the Lord to add that to his own testimony, that your faith, here it is, should not be in wisdom. And he's speaking of the wisdom of the world. That's what the Corinthians boasted in, the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because someone who's converted that way, someone who senses God's love and power, when Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes in their life, it's hard to get him out then. But when you've been tricked in, when you've been uh, uh, slicked into it by slick words and things like that, the same way you can be slicked out of the word. And so God is saying through the Holy Spirit, he wants the word of God cemented in you. All of the slick philosophers and the psychologists and all those things, he says, I may not know, Paul says, I may not know a lot about other things. And Paul was a, a, a studied man, but he boasted in the Lord. I don't know all about the Masoretic text. I might not know all about the Texas Receptus, but no one can tell me that I have not experienced the love and forgiveness of God. I remind, I'm reminded of my mom. She used to say, I know that I know that I know that right there will keep you. When everybody else is talking contrary about the word and, 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 and putting a downward spin on the word, your faith has to be built up. And that's what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. I don't need, no, I don't need anybody to tell me that God has forgive, forgiven me that God is a faithful God, that he is a loving God because his Bible, the Bible tells me so and I've experienced it in my life. Verse five tells us, Paul says, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There is no more pro profound theology than Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's demonstrated his love, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't have to show us anything else. He showed us his love. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 through 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness, moronic to those who are perishing. But verse 6, he says, however we speak, speaking of the believer, we speak wisdom 
to us who are being saved. It is the power of God among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. So he's, he says, we do have wisdom, but our wisdom comes from God. We, we're not interested in the wisdom of the world that's fading away, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And by the way, in Corinth, they're jousting back and forth as they would debate. They said you would, you would get more mature by arguing and debating with each other. Verse 6, we speak, Paul says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, why those that are mature? He'll let us know. Yet not the wisdom of this age, and it has a moral connotation to it, nor of the rulers of this age, again, literally, who are coming to nothing. So Paul says the princes of this world, the rulers of this world, the ones that really are running the show on this earth, the ones that find it hard to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God, he says, and who thinks the gospel is foolish, Paul said, they are coming to nothing. I like how we says, he says, who are being liquidated. 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The idea is, if you love the world, you don't have any other place for God, for the Holy Spirit in your life. He doesn't have anywhere to be anchored to you. That's why he tells us that. We've got to understand that the heart of God is infinite. I wish my heart was infinite, but humans, they have a finite heart. And we can only put so much in our heart, we begin to let other things fall away. So we have to check, okay, I'm going to run after this job. I'm going to run after this career. I'm going to do all these things. And the word of God gets put to the side. But God is not like us. He's infinite. Of all of the believers on this planet, everyone who cries out to the Lord in sincerity, he comes to them. And he spends time with them. And it's like it's only you and him, no one else. God can do that. We're finite. We can't do that. That's why Jesus says in Mark 4, 19, he tells this parable. He says, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful because we have only so much capacity in our hearts. We, we have to be focused on one thing at a time, maybe two at best, but after that, your time begins to flail away. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He can't find a place in you if you're running after other things. Jesus wants to be, make his home in our hearts. But if we're running after other things, he has no place there. He also says in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, for all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, speaking of God, but is of the world. And the world is presently passing away. Jesus warns us, 
Don't set your affections on this physical existence. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life, we go on vacations, we have fun, but his point is not to love this world agape, loyalty to it, because it's passing away. Because his point is the world is flailing, it's falling away. It is already in the process of passing away. Let me help you out a little bit. It's been recently, a couple of banks have failed. It would be moronic for you to take your money and put it in a failing bank, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying about this world. It's presently passing away. So I shouldn't put stock in it. I shouldn't put all my life's hope in it because it's pa- right now it's passing away and it will continue to pass away until Jesus comes back. So that's not smart. And Paul says, we have wisdom to speak these things. I might can't tell you the latest AI invention or where you should put your money, but I can tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the wisdom of God. And this present age, you can measure it. Think about it. Look at where he's brought you to. And there are some good things in this world, but we are on the brink of destruction. They say over 50% of the world's scientists work on defense programs on one respect or another. That's the wisdom of this age, to have us eating bugs while the elite has their meat. Paul says, we have a wisdom, though. Verse 6 says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Not speaking of worldly wisdom. Once again, we're speaking of the wisdom of God now, Paul is speaking of. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are in the process of passing away, coming to nothing. Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is those who by reason of use, they're obeying the word, not just listening. That's the reason uh, uh, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So every time I obey the Lord, I'm working on my spiritual muscles. Every time I obey him, I get stronger. But every time I stop reading the word, I stop praying, I stop obeying him when he speaks to me, I become weak. That's what he says here. Paul says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, something that is hidden, that is made known in the fraternity of believers. So it's not hidden to us. When God reveals himself to us and I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life, he reveals those things. Paul says, the wisdom of God, which God ordained, I like the word foreordained, before the world, before the ages for our glory. He did all of this for every believer's glory. Grasp that, if you will. 
There is a wisdom, Paul says, and we're the believers speaking it in a mystery. It's a hidden wisdom which God foreordained before the ages, and he did it for our glory. I feel like God said, you're not going to get too much glory down here, so I'm going to give you something to glory about. And you really can't glory in it in and of yourself because you did nothing to receive it. I revealed myself to you. But while everybody is calling you a moron and looking down on you and thinking you're crazy, I'm giving you the glory just by knowing me which was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That's Christ, the Lamb of God, who was offered before the foundations of the world with you and me in mind. And it's for our glory. Let's go to verse 9. Don't don't think I forgot verse 8, but I think if I read verse 9 first and then verse 8, you'll understand it better. He says in verse 9, but as it is written... I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This verse is quoted all the time at funerals. And I understand why. But it really, uh, the Holy Spirit is not speaking of that. It's speaking about the unsaved world, unsaved people, the princes, the rulers of this world who are passing away and the hidden wisdom that we have, they, the unsaved, don't understand it. Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. It's a wisdom that's not ascertained. It's a wisdom that's not apprehended with natural ability. Verse 9 tells us, so I have not seen, ear have not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. The princes of the world, they didn't understand it, he says. They didn't see it. If they did, verse 8 tells us, they, the ones in authority, even now, the ones who want to make this earth heaven on earth right now, no matter how many people they try to eliminate, this earth will never be the heaven on earth. But that's what the elite wants to do. That's why it says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Even in Jesus' day, leave us alone. We're doing fine, Jesus, and they get rid of him. He says, none of the princes of this age understand this wisdom that was there before the foundation of the world. Latter part of verse 8, for had they known, here it is, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's counter active to them. Verse 9, but as it is written, the whole point of this verse that we quote all the time, he says, I has not seen, and he's speaking of the unsaved eye, 
the unsaved ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart the unsaved man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, but contrast that, but God has revealed them. Apocalypto, unveiling. He's unveiled them to us through his spirit. We are blessed people. Those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, we don't realize how blessed we are. We, and I'll put myself in it, we allow this world and the things of the world to beat us down. We don't understand what's going on. And God is saying, you're blessed. I've revealed my son to you. And I don't do that with everybody. He says, for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. I'm blown away. But we can get so used to what we hear and what we we're around all the time, and that's coming to Bible study, and that's reading your Bible. We forget what a phenomena that is for God to reveal himself to us. We would have never moved an inch toward him. He had to reveal himself to us. That's what Almighty God did. Jesus dying on the cross for my sin, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sky turning black at noon, the whole thing, everything that took place, there's no doubt in my mind that it happened. He was placed in a tomb and rising again on the third day. Then he goes and collects his purchased possession one by one. I have no hesitancy in believing that, but it's because of the faith that God has given me. And one day for all of us, there's going to be a place where we all will go. When we take our last breath here and we pass from the world, this world to the next. But God is so good. We have to understand that we're not going to face what the unbeliever will face. It's going to be a completely different scene that the princes of the world who don't see and don't understand as they see because of their physical eyes and ears that keeps them caught up in the here and now. In the here and now. But when the time comes, when we have to push all of our chips on the table, who have you trusted in? Our designation will be completely different from the unbeliever, the princes of the, of the rulers of the age who don't see anything because with their physical eye and ear that kept them infatuated with this world. When it comes time to settle up with the great equalizer, death, I expect Jesus to come and get me. It says in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's no angel that comes gets us. Michael, he doesn't come get us. Jesus Christ comes. People like to think it's like you close your eyes and you're falling in, you wake up and you're in heaven. God is too kind. God is too loving to do that. I think it's like I'm in the living room and he grabs my hand and he takes me into the kitchen. 
eyes open in everything. I know what I'm doing. There's no fear in that. That's what he says here. First Corinthians 9, 10, he says, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of unsaved human beings. It hasn't entered into their hearts. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. He says in verse 10, but God has revealed them to us. We hit the lottery when God revealed his son to us through his spirit. He made those things real to us. And then he says, for the spirit searches, it continually searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? You think you know someone, but you don't know them. It's the Holy Spirit in us who knows everything about me. Some of the things I've forgotten, don't want to bring up, the Holy Spirit knows. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received, Paul puts himself in there, now we have received, and he's speaking to the Corinthian church who's failing in everything, who's acting up in everything. Paul puts himself with them because they have the Spirit of God in them. They've not been matured yet. That's why Paul comes back. He says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. The same way you know the deepest thoughts of yourself. I'm driving sometimes now, and I, and I start thinking about my life before I was saved. And I'll think about something. I said, God, I can't even believe I did that. I have forgotten about that. That's the spirit who knows you. He knows everything. And God still died for you. That we might know the things that have freely been freely given to us by God. That's a great word. Because we want to earn our salvation. We haven't received the spirit of this world, Paul says, but we've received the spirit of God that we might know, and that's experientially, the things that have been freely given to us by God, freely, without a cause. That's what it means. I love Revelation 21.6 when it says, Jesus speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely, without a cause. You haven't did anything to earn it. You couldn't do anything to deserve it. But I'm so good, I'm going to freely give it to you, to him who thirsts. And it's God, it's the Holy Spirit who makes us thirsty for the things of God. We could never deserve to drink of the water of life. I'm not worthy to drink. The only way I can drink is freely, but that's how he offers it, and I'm so glad. And the change that happens in our life is through his spirit, through the change of our life, and we respond through love as we serve him and give ourselves to him as we realize the grace that he spent on us. Verse 12 says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, so not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
that we might know the things that have been freely, there it is, given to us by God. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, and it's continually teaches, comparing we get our word expounding when you expound on the word. Well, that's the word he uses here. When he's expounding spiritual things with spiritual things, spiritual truths with spiritual words, we have a new vocabulary when we're saved. I'm reminded when I was an unbeliever, every other word was a cuss word until I got home. I, I straightened up a little bit then. But, it, but they would slip out then. But it's something about when the Lord came and he saved me, those words have disappeared. I use words like sanctification and justification and you're saved and all those things. I would have never used those words until the Holy Spirit came into me. Verse 14, he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, that is that word moronic to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is going to compare two types of people here for us, the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural, sukekos, the soulish man. It's not, I shouldn't use that word, but it's a good word to use because you can't find it. But I like to use the soulish man. God creates man, take you back to Genesis, body, soul, and spirit. Genesis 1. He creates everything in six days. He creates from nothing, bara, makes something out of nothing. Then he forms the next time he creates something from nothing is when he creates the sea creatures. I've been to Disney World. I've been to, where's the whale at? Where's that place? Orlando. I've seen the whales. And, I, and every time I read this in Genesis 1, I'm thinking, Lord, why did you take your time to make the sea creatures? But the cattle and everything, you spoke that and in those into existence. Read Genesis. It, it just it befounds me of that. But when he comes to man, he scoops the dirt off the earth. He gives him a soul. Our animals have soul. Your dogs have soul. That's why... Mind, will, and emotion. I like what John Corson says. I have never seen my dog ball his paws up and pray before he eats because he has no soul. But you can know when they're good and when they're bad and when they have emotions and things. But God, after he formed man, and, and, and this is what I think. When he formed man, he ran, started moving, doing everything. I think it was later that God breathed into him the spirit. The Bible says he became a living soul. He was already living. He was already moving. But then he had the capacity of God. That word is sama, breath. It's the spirit, the breath of God. So man has a body on this earth. 
Man has a consciousness, a soul. Man is a spiritual being. And before the fall, he was in, made in God's image. We still have a little of God's image with us now. When Adam sinned, we know he died. But he didn't die physically because Adam lived 900 and something years. But the Bible says he died, and he died spiritually. He could still communicate all those things. He had the mind, will, and emotion, but he couldn't communicate with God anymore because he didn't have the spiritual being in him to communicate with God. Adam lived 900 years. Death certainly entered the process then. But the natural man today, who is not alive spiritually, he can have the world's greatest IQ. He can have a great intellect. He can even be religious. He judges everything the way the world does, by what he sees. But it tells us, I has not seen, by what he hears. But the Holy Spirit says, ear has not heard. You know, you have the five senses, the sight, hear, the taste, the smell, and the touch. God gave us those things to enjoy this earth. But it takes more than that to get to the next world. It takes more than those five senses. And that's what the natural man does not have. He knows nothing, the soulish man, of this other organ. And it doesn't just mean that he's a sinful man or a bad man or he spent time in jail. God, Jesus Christ, proves that. When he goes to Nicodemus at night, he could have got uh, anybody. He could have got Barabbas. He could have found some really bad dudes to let you know you need to be born again. But the wisdom of God says, I'm going to find Nicodemus, who everybody looks up at, who everybody thinks he's got it going on because he can quote the first five books of the Pentateuch. I'm going to go to that man and make my point to him. And that's what he does. You have to understand in the religious world, Israel had the market on truth. In the midst of Israel, there was 40,000 rabbis, 22,000 priests in Jesus' day. In the middle of them was the Sanhedrin, the religious and political leadership. And in the middle of them was Nicodemus. Jesus went to him and he said, are you the definite article? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Nicodemus understood to be, he was the brother, most people think, of Josephus. They said he was the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. Nicodemus Ben-Gurion the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. Everybody thought he had it going on. That's why Jesus, the wisdom of God, he goes to him. So when Jesus speaks with him about the new birth, he doesn't go to the prostitute. He doesn't go to the drug addict. He doesn't go to the adulterer. Everybody thinks they're bad. Uh-uh. I'm going to go to this religious man. He goes to the religious world. He goes to the religious leader of the religious world who everybody looked up at. 
Everybody thought he had it going on. The most honored man in Israel. That's where Jesus goes to. And he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He understood a lot of things Nicodemus did with his eyes and with his ears. Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God be with them. Jesus told him, you don't understand anything at all, Nicodemus. You only think you see. You only think you hear. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus can't figure it out. He can't understand it. Jesus says to him, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel through mazo. Do not think it's amazing that I said to you, you must be born again. But understand this in verse 14. The Holy Spirit says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, they are moronic to him, that word folly, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And then he gives us two reasons, Paul does, and the reasons that some of the geniuses and so many of the religious people of the world never seek Christ the people with some of the highest IQs, the reason that so many people of this world don't apprehend the things of the Spirit, there's two reasons. Those people would never follow a dying Messiah. They would call it folly. They think it's moronic. The second reason is, are those things spiritually discerned? I'm amazed at smart guys. I love to be around them because I'm not smart. They, if I know, if I want to know where to, where to put my money, I go ask them. If I, if I know in the stock market what to put there, I go ask them. They know, they know all those things. But I don't go ask them about God. Not too often. They think it's folly, Jesus Christ dying on the cross which is the power of God, Paul says. And they think we are idiots believing what we believe. They think we go to Wednesday evening service because we don't have anything to do, anything better to do. They think we come to church on Sunday because we were just raised that way. But I tell them, don't feel sorry for me. I have eternal life, and you're going to need eternal life. Don't feel sorry for me. The home run has been hit. Jesus has circled all the bases. The scoreboard just doesn't reflect it. He's won. And if he's won, I've won. So I'm just waiting for him to call the game. They have no capacity to understand these things. They have five senses, the natural man. But that sixth organ, the spiritual organ, is dead. It needs to be brought back alive. He contrasts that with the natural man. He says in verse 14, nor can he know them. 
because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges, and it's the same word discernment, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. He perceives these five things. What is discernment? It's an ability beyond the five senses, and the unsaved man does not have it. It's interesting, you know, when you, when you read through the Bible, he tells us here, I have not seen. But in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, or being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. But wait a minute. He says, we have not seen. That's not with the physical eye. It's with the heart. It's with discernment. We're told here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, Revelations 2.17. That's not the physical ear. That's the heart. He also tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not the physical tongue. It's something, again, of the heart. We just finished the book of Joshua, and Joshua said, take hold of the promises of God. We don't take hold of them with the physical hand. So the idea is the spiritual man. There is a discerning factor here. Don't let the world tell you that you've gone out of your mind. You're crazy for putting your trust in Jesus Christ. But the truth is you've apprehended things. You have discerned things that the most brilliant people on the earth and once again, I think of Eli Musk. You can't explain Jesus. You can't get to know Jesus with your five senses. And I found myself feeling sorry for him as I watched him on TV. They don't have that spiritual organ, the unsaved man. We've been brought back to life through a new birth. We're able to perceive things now. And we're going to become greater and greater of a minority in this world, unless there is revival. Matthew 7, 13, he says this, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. There are few who find it. We're never going to be a majority down here. We have to believe, and Paul will say it in the next chapter. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, so then he who plants is, is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. The truth that we give other people is life in itself. I'm reminded of Ted Krasinski. Remember the Unabomber? And the Unabomber would set his bomb up, and then he would leave, and then it would explode. And John Corson, I was listening to him one day, he says, that's what the believer has, the word of God. We're unibombers for the Lord. We tell them the word, we tell them the word, and it might not explode then, but just give it time. It's going to explode because the word, the Bible tells me, is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's going to do what it's supposed to do. We've just got to give it out. 
and we lack at doing that sometimes. The message we have is foolishness to the world, but it's life-changing and it's powerful. You can communicate it quietly if you want to. You can use a microphone. You can tell the word funny and let people laugh, but that word will get to them. That changes the life. And in Corinth, they were getting down by all these philosophies and the worldly things going on in the world. Paul tells them that we have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. The natural man and the rulers of this age, the wisdom of this age, knows nothing what has taken place within us. Paul tells them, I wanted you to be standing in the power of God, not through wisdom. He tells us in verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. We're not against people. I'm not. I want everybody to get saved. We love people. God loves people. That's why he said God so loved the world, the unsaved world. He tells us in Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. I'm glad there's doctors, and I'm really glad there's lawyers. I needed a few in my day. But there's a greater truth, and the Holy Spirit wants us to see it, and that's there's a greater truth than worldly wisdom. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That the natural man has no capacity, none whatsoever, to understand. His judgment will be lost when he judges things. The soulless man, no matter how brilliant he is in his wisdom of the world, they are moronic when it comes to spiritual things. And all praise is the glory, goes to the glory of God. He designed it that way. As I was reading this, I'm blown away that the Lord would choose me. And you should be blown away that he would choose you. You would have never known the Lord unless he drew you. And that's what he did. He draws you. He gives you the understanding and not the wisdom of the world. Like Paul says, which is coming to nothing. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the wisdom of God. And God planned it and he designed it that way. I'm amazed. That's why he says, I has not seen nor ear heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. If he would have never drew you guys, you would have never understood that. You would have never known that. We have something that the richest man in the world now will never have. We have an eternity with Jesus Christ. What's 70 years? I always say that. What's 80 years? What's 90 years on this earth when we're going to spend the eternity in heaven? Glorifying our king. It's amazing. I'm going to close with Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23, the worship team can come up because I love these verses. It's almost like Paul is just blown away. He cannot understand the riches and the kindness and the love of God. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, 
do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, not Sophia, the wisdom that comes from God and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Notice he said, towards us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in this eon. When we die, we're still going to be with him. He's still going to be the king of kings and lord of lords, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't let this world get you down. Don't let the trials and tribulations of this world get you down. Jesus Christ promised us eternal life. And he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But once again, knowing that one day we're going to live where no more pain and no more sorrow and no more hurt, no more death, all of those things, we're just waiting. What we need to do is draw closer to the Lord as the days get darker, understand who we are in Christ Jesus, and understand he is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's going to take care of us. He's a godly husband. He's going to take care of us. But this world, the princes and the rulers, they can have it while it's here because it's all going to be balled up one day. And those that gave their lives to Jesus Christ will rule and reign with him forever. That should keep us going. No matter what we're going through, that should keep us going. Jesus said it would keep us going. And we know that he doesn't lie. So what we have to do is don't go by things that are seen, but go by things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. Not going to be here forever. But the things that are unseen last forever. A home with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, sometimes... It's like that old saying, we can't see the forest for the trees. We can't see Jesus for so many things that we think are going wrong and upside down. But he's calling us. He's telling us, this is not our home. And I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you until I call you home. So fret not. Go look at the birds. They neither gather, and yet our Heavenly Father takes care of them. How much more of value are you, his kids, 
who paid, that he paid his blood for us. He loves us. And he's not going to put more on us than we can bear. May we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. May we walk closely to him, understanding that one day we're going to see him face to face and we will never have to look back at this world. Holy Spirit, do a work in all our hearts. May we draw closer to you. May we live for you. May we trust you more. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Let's stand and close with a 